Accomplishment Coaching is proud to present the following fine programming. Accomplishment Coaching, where coaches lead and leaders coach. AccomplishmentCoaching.com. Welcome to The Coaching Show with your host, Master Certified Coach, Christopher McCollum. Very excited today to have in person in our studio here, Sean Van Tyne. Sean is a customer experience architect. He's the principal at SeanVanTyne.com. I'll tell you how to spell that in a minute. But Sean, uh, customer experience, what are we talking about? I get that question a lot. So let's even back up. I Nobody mean, knows what you do. I know. <laughs> you know what? Um, you know, I've written a few books on this subject. My my sister has a few copies and she has no <laughs> idea what I do. Um, you know, family. But we're not here to talk about read that. the books, people. People read books when your family members go to the trouble of writing Thank and publishing you. them. Thank yes. you very much. Let me introduce Let, you to my sister, and then maybe is, you can sit down. Am I getting a, a customer experience right now? <laughs> yes, you are. So, uh, customer experience—that's it's almost a loaded question, right? Or you can say it's written right into it. The big question I get a lot is, what's the difference between customer experience and user experience? Because people hear, you know, both of those terms thrown around quite a bit. Right. Yeah. I just I just interviewed a user experience expert, and I don't know anything more than I did before. <laughs> well, well, I've been in the field for well over twenty years, and I know less every year. That's for sure. But in general, um, what we say in the books, and you know, what I try try to tell people is that a a customer experience um, is a very broad thing that has to deal with who your target audience is from prospect to grave. Mm. Um, hopefully there's a there's a journey there where they you convert them from a prospect to someone who um, purchases your product or services. Uh, they go through a phase of, of loyalty, hopefully, where there's some kind of brand stickiness mm -hmm. and they'll choose your, your product or service over someone else. And then the, the, the goal is advocacy. You want to convert your customers into advocate. And what that means is, is that your customers will start selling your products for you. If you've ever met like an Apple head mm -hmm. or a mini Cooper driver, yeah. they'll tell you how great their mini Cooper is or their Apple, you know, is, um, that's what you want. You want people that will actually go out and sell your product for you and right. anywhere along the way, Tesla driver. Tesla. Yes. 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 Mm -hmm. My good friend just bought a Tesla and he, that's all I hear about now is about that Tesla. Mm -hmm. But that's good. I mean, if you have a product or a service and you have people that are um, mad about it and evangelize it for you, that means you're doing something right along your customer experience. And what's uh, differentiate user experience for us? So it's in the words, right? A user experience denotes usage. So um, for someone to be have a user experience with your brand or your product means they actually had to use it. Um, so that's kind of the key. And I like to say the user experience is the proof point that you've delivered on your promise. Hmm. So that's kind of loaded also. People will either acknowledge or not acknowledge that their brand is making a promise, their company, their services, their products are making a promise, mm -hmm. regardless if they're aware of it or managing it. Drop some names, Who, uh, uh, who, for whom have you worked or provided this service that we would recognize? 
Oh gosh, really? I gotta drop names. Uh, Sony PlayStation has been a, a good client of mine. Never heard of them. Yeah. Um, BD Medical Technologies, which you've probably mm. not heard of, but they're like a ninety-six billion dollar global company. Nice. Um, right now, I'm working with companies like uh, Netgear, um, yeah, UserZoom, a lot of uh, a lot of Bay Areas, a lot of folks in the Bay Area. Um, get this, focus on this. So a lot of my clients are in the Bay Area. I do work with local companies too, but they're small brands that you've probably never heard of. I cannot tell you, I cannot not tell this joke, which is that uh, that BD Medical Supplies, I've got BD Little Eyes. That's where I got it. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's talk about, let's talk about the customer experience. Right now, if we talk about service professionals, if we talk about uh, everyone from therapists to coaches, if we talk about people that are solopreneurs in any kind of a service industry, what are they doing wrong in their customer experience management? They're probably doing most everything wrong. Uh, very few people deliver a great customer experience. In mm. fact, um, in the process of uh, writing one of our books, The Customer Experience Revolution, uh, we talked to folks at J.D. Powers who was doing research at the time on this particular subject, and they found that only about 5% of companies globally are really focusing on and delivering a great experience. So so what's, let's drill down a little bit. And in service industries, and I'm thinking again about you know solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, people who are mostly doing it themselves, what's the biggest one thing that we should take on, that we should do, that we're not doing, or stop doing that we're doing? I think the, the number one thing, the biggest mistake that most people make is um, they don't really know who their target audience is. Hmm. Um, in some cases, they will willingly admit that. Yeah. Or there'll be multiple people in the organizations that have different ideas of what that is. Hmm. Um, so the first thing is to really get to understand who your target audience is. And there's all kinds of methodologies and techniques that we do to do that. And then create an alignment among the leadership of the company and then eventually across the company about who is our customer? Who are we serving? Who are we here to help? Whose lives are we trying to make better? And are we really doing that? Great. So as uh, I want to differentiate that because I don't think we're talking about niche there, which is a marketing decision, right? We're mm -hmm. talking about actually defining our customer. And generally, are we, do, are we doing that poorly because we're too broad? Like, hey, if they're breathing, they could be a customer. Yes. Or because we're too narrow. Like, I only want left-handed, four-foot people who are, <laughs> you know, speak Spanish. Hey, leave me out of this. Um, <laughs> so usually people are too broad. They think everyone's their customer. I have this conversation all the time. Oh, anyone's my customer. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Do you serve non-English speakers? Well, no. Do they have to have a credit card? Well, yes. Um, so you can start narrowing it down just by that. That's more segmentation than it really is understanding your target. Uh, in my field, uh, kind of the first phase is around empathizing. Um, and we use techniques like um, interviewing and observating uh, who the target customer is. So actually um, watching your target customer interact with your solution. Because the truth is humans are really bad at articulating what they do or why they do it. So um, like a surveying and focus groups um, really aren't that good. They're good for very broad things like conceptually, am I heading in the right direction? But if you really want to understand the mental model of your target audience, you really have to watch them and interview them while they're doing things. It's called contextual inquiry. I didn't want to get all technical with this, but that's what it's called when, when you do that. And that's where you really start empathizing, walking in their shoes, and understanding what your brand you know, does for them, what it means to them. Random, random side comment, if, uh, uh, or really question, if, 
we've got some experience. So recently I've, I've been on a couple of different websites uh, or interacting with companies that should be doing something that they, sh- that, that they don't know to do. Okay, so uh, AMC Stubbs, right? Have you gone to the movies? AMC has this like membership. I just joined. Yeah, nice. So I go to AMC Stubbs and I get my ticket and I keep it on my phone and I walk in with my child to watch the movie and I show them my ticket and then I go to order popcorn because why not? And um, which is where they make their money. (laughs) And and the guy says, "Do you have an AMC Stubbs membership?" And I say, "Yes." And he and he says, "Well, I need your number." And I look at my phone, and there's no place on that ticket that says my AMC Stubbs number, which seems really basic, which, right? Which, why are they just scanning from your phone? Exactly, right. right? So Starbucks can do that. Yeah. Oh, Again, God, Starbucks is so Star Starbucks does a great job of managing Customer. their brand and their customer experience. That's right. So when do I? So here's my random side question slash comment slash opinion is do <laughs> do we? How do we communicate? Should we communicate with the organization? Like, hey, knuckleheads, you you missed an opportunity here that should be so basic that you should have seen this. That's a customer experience failure, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, and that, again, like I said, 95% of companies don't do it right. And they are missing opportunities like that because no one's out there really observing. So probably the person who designed or developed that uh, experience probably didn't do any research whatsoever. They probably said, hey, this is a good idea. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's really all about research, design, and testing to make sure that it actually works for the person you're trying to help. Great. So that's what that's why the big companies pay you the big money, is you'll come in and you'll organize an entire like study or project around this. Here's wh- who we have to interview first. What do you do for a smaller company? Or when, when I'm thinking about our audience today, a lot of people are starting their own you know, businesses just with themselves and their mm-hmm. own bootstraps. Can you do something for us who are smaller and less resourced? Absolutely. But let's let's back up. I, I basically have two buckets of clients. My, my first bucket of client is, like we talked about, those Bay Area guys. So it's usually the person who already owns the experience design, mm-hmm. usually the, the head of UX or CX or whatever their title may be. And they usually bring me in as a supplement to something that they need to get done. It's like, Sean, we really need to align our design strategy with the corporate strategy, and we'll go do it like a two-day offsite with whoever needs to be there. Um, or, hey, we really need to um, explain design thinking, and we'll co-develop, let's say, a design thinking workshop, and we'll roll that out you know, across the organization globally. Or it might be persona development and journey mapping. We'll get back to that, right? So that's one type of client that I have. The other type of client is a medium or small company that doesn't have any of this. They don't have a UX person. It's like, right, right. look, I just found out this thing's important, but I have no idea what this thing is. Right. And we usually start with strategy, right? It's like, well, tell me a little bit about your business objectives and what you want to do. And then we, I'm a big fan of scorecards, right? So I'll create them a experience design scorecard that aligns with their objectives. And then from that falls out the initiatives. And then from that, then we can plan what they need to do. Um, usually organization development is involved. Like, Hey, where does it, you know, where does it belong in my organization? Right. Does it belong in my technology side? Does it belong in my marketing side? Uh, what kind of processes do we need to add or change or revise to make this worthwhile? Who do we need to hire? I tend to work a lot with HR, defining roles and responsibilities. I tend to work a lot with operations in terms of process changes, things like that. What, uh, when we think about the smaller companies, mm-hmm. um, 
where do you recommend it? Is this something that should be reporting only to the, the top executive, or is this something that can actually be incorporated into an HR or an operations role, or where, where does role live usually? That's a, that's a question I get a lot, and it all depends on your business. So I can tell you that if you are a technology business, mm -hmm. your product is technology, then more than likely experience design is going to report into your CTO. Got it. If you're more of a consumer-based business where it might be technology-enabled, but uh, technology isn't the main product or service, then it might fall under marketing. Um, if you're a product-centric company, that is, if you have a product management organization, it might report there. Um, and this is how most companies do it. Now, those 5% of companies we talk about, mm -hmm. Apple, Starbucks, they all have like a chief experience officer. So most people know that, or maybe most people don't know, but Steve Jobs' right-hand man was Johnny Ives, right? People know who Johnny Ives is. He's their, he's their, their, he's their chief design officer. Never heard of Johnny at, Ives. At Google, it's Luke W. I mean, I could go through the list of you okay, know, who they are. So, so generally in a large organization, it's reporting right to the head, to the top exec. Yes, it reports right into the CEO. They're a chief design officer. Or, or that's usually the title they go by. Okay, great. And, and your role in a large organization is that you can come in and consult to that chief yeah, I, or or uh, yeah, there is, um, you know, some coaching, there's some advising uh, that goes on there. Okay. Um, usually we both know, we both know just as much as the other person does. They just need to, like a lot of people today, they're already working 60, 80 hours a week and they know they know they need to figure out their strategy. They just don't have the bandwidth to do it. And they need to bring in someone else who they can trust mm -hmm. that also gets what they do. And I've done it a lot. So they can bring me in and we can work together and we can solve things. Great. If you feel like you need that uh, that, or just want to talk to Sean because you're inspired by our conversation today, please contact him through his website, which is Sean, S-E-A-N, Van Tyne, V-A-N-T-Y-N-E.com. That's SeanVanTyne.com. Um, Sean, what about, what about us little folks? Um, I want to get to something we can use here today right now. What's the biggest piece of advice you can give small business or or medium-sized businesses about their customer experience besides what I heard you speak to before is empathy. What, what's, a, what's an actionable step that you recommend most often to small businesses? Well, there's lots of them. So, um, in fact, I, I love working with small businesses, um, and I, I personally love approaches that are agile or guerrilla mm -hmm. in solving these things. Um, the easiest thing you can do is just start talking to your customers. I on love anything. This one. I love this. So one. you can either, if you're, um, if you're in sales, you're talking to your customer, but you're not listening. Right. I mean, you're listening, but you're listening to make a sale. Right. Um, I, I like to. I, I sometimes work with sales, and the first thing I tell someone is, I'm, I'm the opposite of sales. Instead of, instead of me telling you how great your, the, your product is, you tell me what sucks so I can make it better. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of throws people off. Um, if you're in marketing and you're not sure your message is right, you know, take some time to develop some personas. And, you know, if you have an idea who they are, you know, you can start from there. Usually, you know, the rule of five applies. If you think you kind of know who your target is and you talk to five people about that target, you can really find out what motivates them. You know, why do they really, uh, you know, really love your brand? Uh, there are, there's this idea of jobs to be done. So another way to kind of reorient um, the way that you think about your products and services and your target audience is say, what job does my product or service do for you? Mm. And that just kind of reframes the whole conversation. It usually throws them a bit too. It's like job. It's like, yeah, 
you know, this is this is doing a job for you. I mean, there's a there's a famous story about um, Burger King, and they were trying to like most companies, they're trying to increase sales, and they brought in you know some research experts, and they spent all this money on this, and made all the changes to their menus and all that. Everything stayed flat, uh, and then they brought in this guy who um, just sat outside. And watch people going in and out of, you know, the story. I see a smile on your face. No, I like it though. So this guy just, you know, for the for a couple of days, just watch people going in and out, just observing, right? Seeing what they're doing, what time of day, mm-hmm. and then after observing, he went up and said, "Hey, um, you know, why did why did you purchase that milkshake? Mm-hmm. What job is that milkshake doing for you?" He's like, "Job." I go, "Yeah. Why did why did you?" He didn't ask him about. Did it need more salt right. or, you know, how many do you purchase or why do you chew chocolate? No, he said, what job is it doing for you? And the guy said, well, you know, I have a 20-minute commute. And if I have something like a burger or fries, it only lasts a couple of minutes. But the milkshake, you know, I have to I have to sip on it. And I know it's not good for me, but, it, but by the time I get to work, uh, my stomach is full and I had something to occupy me on the car ride. And a little treat, perhaps. Yeah. Yes. So they see... Okay, and then what do we do with that information? Well, that's what we call an insight okay. uh, in my world. Um, and then you ex- then you you capitalize on that insight. It's like, oh, okay. So now we know that you know we get all these sales around um, milkshakes in the morning. Who mm-hmm. knew people were drinking milkshakes in the morning? Turns out a lot of people do. Um, now we can focus more on targeting that particular audience with that particular product at that particular time of day, right? So it's like. The right audience, the right time, at the right moment. This reminds me of a, an old, old story about um, the, I want to say it was a New York public library, where um, they found out that, you know, some crazy number, like 35% of the people coming to the library were there to use the restroom. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so they, so they made a, you know, bigger restroom sign and they moved, you know, restrooms to the front and like that and actually made it more convenient for people to do what they were there for as opposed to well we think you should be here to you know read the classics and we're going to put dickens copies of dickens at every stall or something right yeah yeah exactly Um, so uh what about you've you've referenced personas a couple of times here and it seems very important to your business or at least your approach to your business that we get this notion of who the people are we're speaking to how is it possible for us to get that right or are we going to always be wrong in looking at what personas are? Um, no, it, persona. So the idea of a persona goes all the way back to Greek theater um, and actors and roles. Um, it was brought back again in the 1940s and 1950s by psychologists. Um, you know, Freud and Jung were interested in personas. You know, thinking about the mask that we put on uh, as individuals, um, and then they uh, entered into the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, personas and marketing is really more around a customer uh, segment. Uh, And then in the 1990s, uh, they entered into the experience design world, more focused on what we either call a user persona or a buyer persona Hmm. or an influencer persona. Um, And we also look at group personas. Like, so for example, a family is visiting Disneyland. That's a group persona. Um, And they're gonna interact as a group in a particular way. And Disney wants to capitalize on that. Uh, by um, the way, if you talk to the Disney people, I want a place where we can uh, go to argue. Because I, <laughs> like I don't like having my arguments with my family in yeah. the middle of everything. Yeah, I'm surprised at Disney they don't like, you know, shuffle you off to a corner if you're, 
right? Because, you know, <laughs> happiest place on earth. Yeah. This is your cast member who's also going to be the family argument. I think we're, we've strayed, though. So back to personas. So oh, it's important are... to create these personas. Yes. Sometimes it's a group. Sometimes it's individual. Yes. And we distinguish the individual. There's an influencer, a buyer, a, a customer, perhaps, or a user. Yeah. Yes. And then what do we do with once we've figured all these people out? Okay, this there our group is a standard family with children who's, who are somewhere between age three and... 17 or yeah. something like so that. So the demographics and the psychographics aren't really that important for the persona. And this is where people I thought that's why we did it. No. No. Okay, why? No. So that's very that's a very that's why market segments are different than personas. Hmm. Personas are a group of people who share the same goals, which can go across multiple demographics and psychographics. So we really want to know what is their goal, what motivates them, uh, what is their pain point? And what does our solution do to alleviate that pain point? That's what makes a persona so distinct. The other, the real power of a persona, it has a lot of advantages, but the real power of the persona is that you get alignment across the company about who your target is. So sales, scripts, marketing messages, uh, product requirements, uh, testing, training, support, finance all knows who these target personas are. In fact, one of the magical things that happens in a company once they adopt a uh, persona is you'll see something that's never happened before. The guy in engineering mm -hmm. will be talking to a person in marketing about Mary. And they all know who Mary is, right? So for the first time ever, these, these two groups that could never have a, a conversation about who they're, who they're delivering their experience to now do with personas. So the first thing it does, it creates alignment across the company about who our target is. Mm -hmm. But the real value, and it's kind of a hidden value, is that you're focused on the right thing. You're not focused on outliers. Um, so the, the conversation is always very, very focused on who is our primary persona where we get uh, our most of our revenue. Sorry about that. That's my stomach grumbling. It sounds a little bit like a motorcycle. It did. The, um, so, so is it important to name your personas? Yes. Because... So, so when you're having a conversation about them, you'll know who Mary is versus Bob, right? Because you'll usually have multiple primary personas and secondary personas. You'll have different personas that are buyer personas, the ones that make the purchase decision, versus the user persona, who's the one who's actually going to interact with whatever your product or service is. Man. Okay. Very important things I haven't thought of in, in a, a long time. Um, one of the things that strikes me, and forgive me if I'm off topic here, is... Uh, Dan Ariely, the work of Dan Ariely, right? You know him, you know this guy, the irrational guy? No? No. You should definitely check out his stuff. So one of the things he points to is, you know, that most of us had career day in our high school or whatever, or when we had career day, we didn't have people like you, our customer or an experience, customer experience expert, right? And we also didn't have form design experts, but he cites a uh, study that was done. I think the Guardian um, uh, the Economist, forgive me, The Economist magazine tried two different ads for college students, mm -hmm. right? An A-B test. Exactly. And they, uh, in one, they offered like, you can subscribe to, and forgive me, I'm making it up, I don't remember the details, but you could subscribe to our print edition for, I don't know, 60 bucks a year, or our um, online edition for 30 bucks a year, or both for 45 bucks a year, right? And he said, first of all, nobody's going to take the print edition for 60, right? And the only reason they put it on the form 
was so that you would rule it out and choose the one in the middle. It was mm-hmm. basically to, because what they what they sold was either the 30 or the 45s, and what the 60 was there was to give you the sense that the 45 was a deal. Right. Right? So he said, you know, we're getting, as, as consumers, as humans, we're getting assaulted by these design things all the time. As a coach and as a person who works with a lot of solopreneurs or entrepreneurs or people, I often cite this as a reason for people to have an offering that they actually don't intend people to purchase. You know, See, I thought you were going to tell me that everyone went for the higher priced one because there is an illusion that the thing I pay the most for must be better than those that I pay less for. Ah, uh, got it. So in your experience, about experience, mm-hmm. um, are you? is it a good idea for uh, service professionals to offer some like high priced thing that nobody's that they should never expect people to take advantage of so as to give people the middle option or the second highest option that people will go for well today in today's digital marketplace there is this idea of moving to -to one-to-one marketing which means you are very specific about who you're marketing to very laser focused Mm -hmm. Um, that's done by being persona driven it's done by understanding the customer journey by making your journey maps Um, and it's done by using machine language and artificial intelligence to be more predictive about what your target customer wants as an individual so that you only send them the message that they need at the right time that they need it based on other behaviors other predictors right so um you know classic example um i don't know someone went to your store and they brought some prenatal vitamins you might want to target them for diapers Mm, nice. That's just a classic example. Right. What, um, sorry, I'm, I'm wanting to go back to Bob and Mary. Okay. The thing that bothered me about Bob and Mary was that it wasn't Roberto and Maria. Are there, <laughs> are there, you, you can use Roberto and Maria if that's, yeah, well, that's the way you roll. My question is, are, are there cultural differences? Do we need to be sensitive to that and create either different personas or, or is, you know, generic Mary representative of all cultures or most cultures? So the answer depends, right? So sometimes the, again, a persona is a group of people that share the same goals and that can go across demographics and psychographics. It can also go across culture, depending on the culture Mm -hmm. and what it is in particular that you want to do for that culture, you know? Um, So so even color itself, black can sometimes mean white and white can sometimes mean black. In some cultures, black is death and white is life. In other cultures, it's, it's literally the opposite. White is death and black is life. So um, yeah, eyebrows raise. Mm-hmm. In some cultures, um, it is rude to belch after a meal. In some cultures, it's rude not to belch after a meal. In some cultures, it's rude to leave something on your plate after a meal. In some cultures, it's rude not to leave something on your plate after meal. So there are, there are all these, these factors depending on, you know, what you're doing. So sometimes culture can um, have a play and sometimes not. Depending so is on what that, you're doing. then what I'm hearing is that that's part of the persona. Like if it matters, whether it's a, a Hispanic or this culture or that culture or a belching culture or not, <laughs> that's part of the persona. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Especially the belching. <laughs> Stop. And, <laughs> and always on a plane, it's impolite, people. I've been on so many planes. I don't want to hear that. Uh, all right. We're, um, we're about to wrap up this segment. And I want to 
I, I want to go back to, I know there's a million things we're going to talk about. We'll continue the conversation, but I want to make sure that in this segment, we get to this whole piece of the persona. Who should, who should be involved in designing or deciding who the persona is that's your customer? And again, I'm wanting to gear this towards more of the smaller business or, or entrepreneur, solopreneur market. How do we get that information or where should we be looking to create these personas? So when I've helped companies develop their personas, um, at a larger company, you want to have you want to have alignment across sales, marketing, product, uh, technology, support. So anyone who anyone who touches the customer is the answer, mm-hmm. or thinks they know who the customer is. Um, and what happens at every persona development um, incidence is you quickly find out that those customer experts have a different idea of who that customer is. So a big part of the workshop is to get alignment. Um, if it's a small company, I've worked with um, like solopreneurs. It's me, the solopreneur, kitchen table, and some pizza. Mm-hmm. And we'll create what we call the proto persona, which is your best guess. So the first step in creating a persona is to get the right people in the room. Could be one person, could be a dozen people and get them to agree on what the proto persona is based on what you know about market segments, um, web analytics. There's all kinds of data, CRM. There's all kinds of data that you have already that you can start uh, looking at. And I'm, I'm a big believer in being data-driven on you know making decisions. Um, and then once you've formed your proto persona, then you really need to go out and um, interview five folks that match each one of those personas. Uh, and then what you learn from that, you tweak the persona. And I've been doing this for many, many years. I'm going to tell you, the personas that come out the other end is not a direct match to what you started with. Because you learn things. You find out that, oh, there wasn't two primary personas. It turns out there was really just one or vice versa. We thought that was one persona, but that turned out to be two. Or wait a minute, that's not really a primary persona. That's a secondary persona, etc. Well, this is fascinating stuff, and when we come back, we'll, we'll have more about this, but I want to uh, let you know again, our conversation today is with Sean Van Tyne, principal of Sean Van Tyne, soon to be the Van Tyne Group. You can find him on the web at www.seanvantyne.com. He's a customer experience architect, and uh, we'll, when we come back, we'll talk more about experience design and uh the customer experience revolution as well as other books he's written thanks for listening we'll be right back are you seeking to change your career to something that is both fulfilling and challenging do you want to help people reach their full potential and strive to achieve their dreams would you like to inspire those around you and help create a better world if you're serious about a career change or just want to explore the craft of personal coaching contact accomplishment coaching with locations across the country in washington dc seattle chicago new york city and san diego accomplishment coaching is the leading institution in personal coaching our staff carefully monitors the entire program live during the training process and have met the strict standards of ICF International to achieve accreditation. Through a focus on quality instruction rather than endless modules of training, Accomplishment Coaching will guide you from your very first step all the way to becoming one of the finest coaches in the world. Visit AccomplishmentCoaching.com to learn more. Accomplishment Coaching, where coaches lead and leaders coach. Christopher McAuliffe is your source for the latest in the world of personal coaching. Whether it be speaking with such luminaries as Deepak Chopra or getting the newest techniques and innovation, the coaching show is always on the cutting edge of what's happening now. 
Tired of presentations with no impact, no inspiration, and no traction? Do dull speakers have you and your team disengaged and distracted by smartphones? Christopher McAuliffe brings energy, insights, and two decades of experience delivered with punch, humor, and heart. Your team will leave energized, uplifted, and with a sense of purpose. Visit ChristopherMcAuliffe.com to bring some heat to your next speaking engagement. M-C-A-U-L-I-F-F-E. ChristopherMcAuliffe.com. Gotham Books presents Marriage Rules by Harriet Lerner, the book Martha Beck calls required reading for anyone hoping to interact successfully with any other human, not just for those in romantic relationships. Get your copy wherever books and ebooks are sold, and visit HarrietLerner.com to learn how to change your marriage today. Continuing our conversation with Sean Van Tyne, you can find out more by going to Sean, S-E-A-N, Van Tyne, that's V-A-N-T-Y-N-E.com. Sean, you've uh, written several books. Uh, The one I'm familiar with, most familiar with, and perhaps is most sort of seminal in the literature about customer experience, is Customer Experience Revolution. Uh, Tell us about that book and tell us about what's upcoming, because I know you've got another book in the world. Yeah, so uh, Jeffrey Bean and I wrote The Customer Experience Revolution God, it seems like forever. I think it. I think we released it in 2011. Um, the inspiration for that book was Jeff and I were really curious about how uh, companies like Apple and um, Starbucks and Netflix and Intuit um, develop, determine, and deliver, you know, great experiences. So we interviewed folks at those companies, and that's what that book's about. It's been wildly successful. We've sold over 10,000 copies. It's used in universities all over the world. Mm. Um, so that, that's, been, that's been kind of fun. We didn't expect any of that, by the way. Oh, we really? Just, we didn't, no, no. We, we were, you know, most books don't do very well, and that's kind of what we were expecting. Um, and then in the last couple of years, I've been focusing more on uh, specifically the user experience. Uh, and the book I just put out last year is called Easy to Use 2.0, User Experience, in agile development for enterprise software. I know that sounds really niche, yeah. Um, but in my field of enterprise software technology, um, in the last 20 or so years, they've kind of embraced user experience. But in the last decade, uh, it's been um, disrupted by uh, agile development, which I think is a good thing in the long run. But what happens is, is companies, when they adopt agile development, they're not quite sure you know, what to do with experience design. Um, and I've been doing this for a long time. No one had written a book on it, so I wrote a book on it. And I also do workshops on it, and it's one of the things that people, you know, bring me in to do. And that's typically for a larger uh, uh, organization, yes? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And it's usually an enterprise software organization that has adopted Agile, and they're like, hey, where does user experience fit? So, yeah, yeah that's more larger stuff. And look, for our conversation, I know that it may be frustrating to you because, of course, a lot of the work that you do is with these large multinational corporations. But I think there's so much work to be done at the, at the small business level sure. here. Yeah, that I I, I'm going to focus our, our conversation there unless you tell me not to. Or no, no. I, I have, I have a, right now I have a couple of really small companies uh, in my portfolio that I'm working with. And um, 
I want to highlight that, but I also want to point people to the book Customer Experience Revolution because you're characteristically modest and talk about it being several years ago. But really, we need this stuff now more than ever. Customer experience. It and is. to focus on it. I mean, Tony Say's book is all, you know, the Zappos guy has been a bestseller for years. Yeah. And it's all about that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like focus on the damn customer. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, I've been doing it for so long. I just think it's it's old news. But you're right. It's It's new news for a lot of people over and over again. And, you know, we, our book was one of the first books on customer experience. And uh, it's, it's usually on most people's top tens list when they talk about customer experience books. You, yeah. And, um, man, it, the, the Tony Say book, the, you know, there's so many books that point to it. I want to also remember I said there were two examples recently. The other example of, of something that should have been there that wasn't there is I was checked into my Southwest Airlines flight, a, an airline that I don't fly very often. And um, I needed to put my daughter's rapid rewards number in mm -hmm. after we'd already checked in. Apparently, it's good luck with that. Yeah, apparently, there's absolutely no way you can ever do that. But it seemed like so simple. And I wanted there to be some place where I could put that in the search and it would say, oh, you can't do it or do it when you get to the airport or something. And it wasn't there. Another example of like, did you ever solve that, by the way? Did like, did you talk to a human and say, hey, how do I do this? No, no, no. Oh, but let's talk about that. How important is it for large or small organizations to have some place on their website, on their information where you can reach a human and ask a question? Well, like with anything, it depends on who your target audience is. So there are some folks that prefer to talk to a human hmm. and there's a whole new demographic that's coming up that don't want to talk to humans at all. They totally prefer, you know, um, figuring this out themselves or being sent to something. Are those millennials we're talking about? Yeah. The millennials and the generation after them. Yeah. What even more digital generation after them? Yeah. What do we call those? People? Uh, they go by many names. Some people are calling them kind of the Y generation. Mm -hmm. Um, but they, they, they are raised digital natives. You remember when the uh, iPad first came out and there was the commercials with the babies where they'd actually be tapping on the right. the pad and they'd go to a magazine and they'd tap it. Well, guess what? Those folks are teenagers now uh, <clears throat> and they're completely digital natives. That's amazing. All right. Uh, so customer experience revolution, very important. And you talked about something a little while ago, journey mapping. Tell us what that is. It sounds like it's scary. <laughs> do I need a machete? It is. It's very scary. Don't do it. Um, so we, we were talking a little bit uh, earlier about um, really understanding your customers, and that deals with you know empathizing. And we talked about things like contextual inquiry and observing your customers using your product uh, you know, natively. We talked a little bit about persona development, which is, okay, now I think I understand them. Let me find a way of defining them and dispersing that knowledge throughout our organization. Right. Kind of the next step after that is journey mapping. And journey mapping is this idea that um, your persona has uh, multiple touch points with your brand, um, starting from the first time they heard about it, which might be word of mouth. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they're out with some friends and their friends going back to, oh my God, I love my Mini Cooper. Oh God, you're not the first person that's mentioned that. Maybe they'll go to your, your website and then they'll check out your website because someone mentioned it to them. Um, a lot of... A lot of it comes up in reviews. So a lot of people won't actually go to the actual website of the organization. They'll go uh, read reviews on it. Mm -hmm. So that's another way that people find out your brand. Uh, social media, they may find out about find out it through Facebook or uh, Snapchat or Pinterest or Yelp. There's all kinds of uh, social media platforms where you can find out about someone's brand. 
Um, there's also, like we said, there's a web experience, but there's also an analog experience. It's just picking up that phone and uh, talking to a human. Uh, there's a sales experience, there's a marketing experience, there's a support experience, there's a billing experience. Um, and smart companies will start mapping out this journey. And along those journeys are touch points. Mm -hmm. And each one of those touch points, there are things that can be measured. Who are they interacting with? What's the interaction like? Uh, what are their blockers? What are their pain points? What does delightful look like? How does the customer define a successful uh, outcome from this? What are we going to measure? Um, how are we going to measure it? So you create the initial journey map, and it's usually full of all kinds of insights and ahas, like, oh, my God, I didn't know they cared about this, or I had no idea that we were falling down here. Mm -hmm. But it's like anything else. Once you understand their journey, then you can improve the journey. seems like everywhere we go, we're getting inundated with requests for uh, uh, will you fill in a brief survey after you've clicked here? Will you fill in a brief mm -hmm. survey at the end of this call? Will you fill in a brief survey? So people are definitely keyed on to it, but it strikes me that I don't have the time or patience for filling out surveys. Oh, anymore. survey fatigue has been a problem for the last several years. It has and, a name. Right. Yeah. It's called survey fatigue. And most smart companies don't use surveys. What do they do? Well, there's all kinds of ways to understand. I want to be smart. <laughs> so there's all kinds of ways. Uh, one is if, if you have a website, um, run some kind of web analytics in the background. Google Analytics, by the way, is free. So that's one way to find out how they get into your website, where do they come from, what are they clicking on, how much time you're spending on this page or this element, and what's their path. You can learn a lot just by looking at your um, analytic logs, at least in terms of how they're interacting with your website and mobile, which, by the way, is how mostly they're interacting with you. Hmm. Um, other companies will spend money in what's called sentiment analysis. Hey, wow. to, ooh, yeah, fancy word. That basically means um, looking at um, how people are talking about you in social media. So, um, and you can control that. Smart companies actually create their own communities, um, like Starbucks, um, so that they can, you know, quickly respond to things. Um, other companies are totally aware of their their Yelp review, and they have social media managers that monitor and react to it as quickly as possible. Um, and they use things like text analytics um, to kind of screen through what people are saying and they tag things that are positive or negative. Text analytics? Text analytics. Somebody's looking at my texts to decide what I like and don't like? Um, not text as in I'm texting from my phone, oh. um, but what did I say on Yelp? What did I Got say it. on Facebook? What did I say in Snapchat that um, is relevant? What, uh, speaking of which, what, where do you want to be as an organization or as a, as a business these days? Do you want to be everywhere or are there places like if you're catering to older folks, you should be on LinkedIn. And if you're catering to younger folks, you should be on snap. Is there, is there a generational difference or a cultural difference? Yeah, absolutely. That's why, everywhere? that's why you need to be persona driven. Cause you'll, once you understand your persona, you'll know where to be. It all comes down to Mary. Where is Mary? <laughs> yes. Where does Mary want to experience? Mary us? goes to Pinterest, but not, not snap. Got it. Mary, it's a probably true, but her daughter is probably spending on more snap. time on Snap, yeah, right? Clear. But is is her daughter even your target? She's probably not, depending right. on what you're selling. So if she's not, then you know uh, where not to spend your time just as much as where you should spend your time. Um, journey mapping. So uh, journey mapping, creating a community, monitor, monitoring and reacting, these all feel like gaps for many organizations and many smaller organizations. Absolutely, especially. and it's not hard to do. 
Um, if let's go back a step. If you're going to do a survey, is there a way to avoid survey fatigue? Are there questions that you can ask that are actually useful and interesting to people, or it's too late? The minute you say survey, you've lost. <laughs> uh, so the answer is yes and yes. Okay. So uh, the the first thing you should know about doing a survey is don't do it. Um, if you are going to do a survey, fewer questions get a higher response rate than a lot of questions. Not surprising, right? If you're only going to ask one question ask the net promoter question. How likely are you to recommend my product or service to someone else? With a few follow-up questions, like why did you respond that way? Great, I'm writing all these down because I need to do this immediately. Everyone should be doing this. To people listening to this. I'm a big fan of net promoter score. <laughs> okay, good. Um, uh, okay, so surveys, don't do them. And if you're gonna do them, ask fewer questions. And if you're gonna ask one, that's the one. Yep. Uh, web analytics, sentiment analysis, anything else? In terms of well, personas, journey mapping, those are all best practices. Now, once once you've you've got this data, it's like, what the heck are you going to do with the data? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like the last part of experience design, which is prototyping and testing. And anything can be prototyped and tested. A service can be tested. So I know, for example, I know the people, for example, that worked on the Apple Store. Wow. And they had um, several hidden locations where they had made complete mock-ups of the store and they would run through it. They'd do things like wayfinding, how you travel, how you traverse a space, mm -hmm. you know, what would the sales experience be like here and there? And I, the company that I know went through like, I don't know, five or six iterations before they even up, even opened up a store. So even a space um, can have a prototype or obviously a device can have a prototype, a website can have a prototype, a mobile app can have a prototype and you want to iterate and you want to iterate that prototype um, early and often with your target customer or the most reasonable facsimile to your target customer to find out what they like and what they don't like and what works for them and what doesn't work for them. And doing this early and often will have a bigger return on investment than not doing it at all or doing it late in your cycle where it becomes expensive. And again, thinking about a smaller organization, I'm envisioning you can do this with friends and family. Absolutely. And, and people who just like you and want you to win. Yeah, I've worked with, with small companies where the first thing we did was, hey, let's look at your current product. Mm -hmm. And we did a well, fancy term. We did a heuristic review um, with the actual employees who had never used their product. And you'd be surprised how many companies have employees that have never used their product or services. It's actually quite high, right? So it was really easy to do that kind of initial assessment of, Hey, you know what here, you know, just looking at how your employees are interacting with your products and services, there's some obviously misses here. There's definitely things that they were confused or didn't understand. Right. And then you can do some kind of high level paper prototyping or cardboard prototype if it's a device or, you know, fake counter role playing if it's a service. Um, and then bring in someone who is more like your target still doesn't have to be your target. This is where you could be using friends and family who are similar to your target, role play, have them interact with the device or service and start tweaking it and iterate it until you got it down. And then once you get it down, then you do some kind of beta testing. You could do alpha testing. Um, but this idea that, okay, now that I really think I got this thing dialed in, now let's, let's expose a small sample of our target customers to see how well we did it. And then once you make your final tweaks, then and only then do you go into production and release whatever that product, service, device is, message is that you want to release. What should we be most worried about? Is it is it worse to get bad press or publicity? Is it worse to have no feedback from people? What's the what's the big specter? 
I, the biggest challenge I see with any company, it's not just around experience design, but it's around everything, is not making a decision. Um, I can't tell you how many companies have failed because they didn't make a decision. It's better to make a bad decision and recover, learn from it and recover from it um, than it is to make no decision. Because with no decision, there's no data and you'll never know what's right or wrong. At least with a bad decision, you know now, oh, that's a bad decision. Let's correct ourselves. And let's face it, a lot of smart brands um, are actually doing good things by their brand by making the bad decision and then correcting it quick, correctly and then getting good exposure. Starbucks again, right? Uh, recently, um, they treated someone poorly uh, that belonged to a, mm-hmm. a particular class, right? And But what was the big news lately? The big news was how they closed from two to four and they lost all this money so that they can train people to treat people the right way. That made just as big news as, you know, their faux pas. Right. Right. And and so response is the most important. Oh, gosh. These days. Absolutely. So first thing is make decisions. It's okay to make bad decisions. But when you do, you need to respond quickly and um, politely, you know, um, own it. Let's uh, talk about Southwest Airlines again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had a mechanical failure that resulted in the death of one passenger and the injuries of many others. Their initial response was, hey, we're going to investigate. Clearly what might have been overkill and would have killed their business was we're going to pull all of our planes until we figure out this issue. They didn't do that. In fact, all their planes ran as normal for that and then they determined it was a mechanical failure and then they determined it was perhaps not enough testing or not enough regular review but everybody on that flight got a check of a curious amount five thousand dollars right initially they said look this isn't you know this doesn't disqualify you from any claims but we want you to have five grand and uh, from your expertise good move bad move i mean it seemed like an odd way to spend their money so um, Southwest is one of the highest rated mm-hmm. uh, brands. Um, and I know they spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. Um, so I'm going to guess that that was very calculated. Uh, There's probably lawyers involved in that sure. decision. And uh, whoever owns their brand experience. I think probably between the two of them and whoever made up their think tank decided that was the best response. They're a smart brand. I, I'm going to guess that they bounced back. I think if you look at their you know, their market share right now in the market that they're doing pretty darn well. Yeah, and fair enough, because presumably there were, I don't know, let's call it 25 people in the immediate vicinity of that issue. Like everybody got a little fright, right? The Mm -hmm. 150 or whatever they're to carry on a plane these days, right? And then, um, and so if you're 40 or 30 or 20 rows back and didn't really see it, but were exposed to it, you're thinking, hey, that's a pretty good payday. I'm all done here. Thank you so much. Yes. Southwest. I'll fly you again. Right. But if you're right in that immediate area, then you've got different issues and it's going to be nowhere near enough. But in doing this, their notion is, Hey, we've addressed that this isn't everything, but we want to have something right up front. It's an immediate thing. It makes news. It shows you're committed to your customer's experience. Yes, yes. And yes. Okay, great. So not a misstep. I don't think so. Okay, good. Let's again, uh, the worst thing you could have done is nothing. It's yes. indecision that hurts brands, not decisions. And if that was a bad decision, at least they can recover from it. But at least they made a decision, and then they learned from that decision. Clear. Uh, any other great examples that we should talk about before we wrap up? Oh, God, there's so many great examples. Um, some of my favorites is uh, 
Apple. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, Apple's always a great brand. No, Apple's made all kinds of terrible decisions that they've recovered from. I mean, how many people remember the Newton? Oh, right. Love um, that. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I was an early adopter, um, but you had to learn a whole different language just right. to, exactly. to, to use the Newton. Um, we don't think about that now. How many people remember the Lisa? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was terribly expensive. How many people remember how terrible the first iPhone was and oh. that crazy antenna thing? I mean, you can go on and on and on. But, you know, Apple's one of the most profitable companies in the world, and it's mostly because they deliver a great experience. And we tend to forget the things that they don't do well because they do, or they don't, yeah, they don't do well because of the things that they do do well. Really great example. And also, um, it struck me, you used a phrase earlier, uh, evangelist, customer evangelist, and mm-hmm. that was coined by, uh, in the Macintosh way, what was the guy's name? Oh, I'm not going to be able to pull it up, but that's the first time we heard cu- customer evangelist, and now it's a, a common term. Who's doing a particularly horrible job, or where have you seen a really bad example of customer experience and, and the cost involved there? Well, that's 95% of companies that we've already discussed. Okay. So most companies are doing a, a, a pretty bad job. Got it. Um, uh, we're down to our last couple minutes, and they are. I give them all to you. If you had a parting thought or a parting shot today that you wanted to have our listeners think about or consider with regard to customer experience as an experienced customer service, uh, customer experience architect, what would you have us think about or take away today? I think, um, I mean, let's be honest. Uh, we're in business to make a profit, and uh, studies have shown that companies that deliver a better experience also do better in the market. Hmm. So it just makes plain business sense to deliver a great experience to your target customer. I think the 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 other the other piece of that is um, when you want to think about long term uh, sustainable revenue, you want to convert your customers into advocates because they, then they sell your product for you, which is another reason why you want to do this. And there's tons of studies that show that, you know, for every dollar invested early in this process, it can return a hundred or more um, later in the process. So it's it's worth it. It's necessary. Um, experience design, something that we now know is critical. The books are Customer Experience Revolution, or if you want to get a bit wonkier, Easy to Use 2.0. You've also written uh, in a, a, a delightful book called <laughs> Product Management and Marketing book of knowledge is that right body of knowledge body of knowledge yeah, so I almost it, had it. it is the only body of knowledge out there for product management and marketing i mean that's a whole nother talk i think product management and marketing is even more misunderstood than experience design great we'll have something else to talk about next time <laughs> all right sean mantine thank you so much for being with us thanks for uh the work that you're doing in the world it's so important and thanks for being willing to educate us in the in this and it's important well it's thank thank you for having me it's been a pleasure thanks